Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to be here. This is the last in our eight-week journey through the letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote. We've been looking at what it means to be a disciple. If you are a Christian today, a good way to define yourself is as a disciple. It's a dynamic word. It means a follower, a learner, a trainee. After Jesus, it's a very helpful way to think of what it's like. And we've looked at these things so far. Partnership, hardship, lordship, friendship, worship, citizenship, leadership. You notice the common theme. Today, we're looking at stewardship. Stewardship, which I'm going to relate specifically to our regular giving and also to our gift weeks, which are today and next Sunday. Stewardship is our responsibility to care for and use what has been entrusted to us. Stewardship is our responsibility to care for and use what has been entrusted to us. And as we finish this letter, a quick recap and wrap up, as we finish this letter, you'll have noticed that it's been a wonderfully warm, encouraging, relational letter. Joy or rejoice has been mentioned 15 times. It's Paul's letter of joy. Six times he's described this church in Philippi as dear friends of Paul, dear partners with Paul. And it's been a hugely Christ-focused letter, which you would expect, but particularly and explicitly so in the letter to Philippians. So the people in Philippi, he describes them not just as a church, but they are God's people in Christ Jesus. That Christ, Paul has said, is all to him. Whether I live or whether I die, Christ is all to me, he's been saying. He's been saying that Christ is Lord. He's Lord because he's our perfect model to emulate and because he is God himself. He's been saying proudly, with great delight, that Christ is our only hope for being right with God. He's been saying that Christ is the prize. Christ is the savior. Christ is the one we await to transform all things one day. And then at the end, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's a Christ-centered, Christ-saturated letter, which is not surprising when he's talking to a group of disciples, because what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to orient everything around him, to be Christ-focused, to be Christ-stewardship. So today, stewardship of our financial resources how we care for and use the financial resources that have been entrusted to us. Now, just a little throwaway, but a little bit of advice from that well-known financial advisor by the name of, used to, be, used to play some tennis, Eli Nastasi, had some great financial advice. Some of you might find this helpful. He said, I haven't reported my missing credit card to the police because whoever stole it is spending less than my wife. So please feel free to make use of that at any point. That's my financial advice for you this morning. Generous stewardship. Here's the phrase, here's the sentence to remember this morning. Generous stewardship 
begins with peacefulness, we're going to look at these, begins with peacefulness, is motivated by partnership to the praise of God. Can you do that with me? Is it on the screen? It is. Do that with me. Generous stewardship begins with peacefulness, is motivated by partnership to the praise of God. Let's read our passage. Philippians 4 from verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. An important word first about how the Christian life works. Becoming a Christian happens like that. You get right with God in a moment. The hand of faith that reaches out to say, God, I need you to save me from my sins and secure my eternal destiny, that's when it happens, in a moment. But that's the beginning of a journey. Conversion happens like that, but it takes a lifetime to become converted, if you see what I mean. It's a process of living out, being right with God. You get right with God in a moment, but it takes a lifetime to learn how to live right with God. And in this culture, this modern Western culture, one of the things that I think is hardest to convert in us on that journey is in the matter of money, finances, and resources. Converting those is a tough conversion. John Wesley, a few centuries ago, said this, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. (laughs) It's frighteningly true. I wonder about yours. I wonder about mine. Has Has your bank balance been converted yet on this journey of faith? Now, before we get into the those three Ps that we're going to look at, I'm conscious of three groups of people here this morning. I'm conscious of this person. They're saying, 
great. The one week I come to Citygate is talking about money. It's a gift week. I wish the person who invited me had told me because I'd have come in a few weeks' time. This is absolutely typical. It's just what I expect of churches. Father Michael of St. Mary's Church began his sermon with this story. I was on a plane last week from Edinburgh to London, he said, when we ran into some very severe weather, which resulted in some serious turbulence. As it got worse, the passengers became increasingly alarmed, and even the airline stewards began to look concerned. Finally, one of them noticed that I had reverend in front of my name on the passenger list. So she approached me and said, Sir, this is really frightening our passengers. Do you suppose you could, I don't know, do something religious? So Father Michael said with a grin, I took up a collection. <laughs> if you're not used to being in this church, you can have the impression it was just inevitable. It's money, isn't it? They're always after their money. And you may not have a steeple on top to repair, but it's always after money. I'm conscious of you. I'm conscious, secondly, of those who may have been put off the whole matter of thinking about finances because of the so-called prosperity gospel. If I'd heard that, and that's all I'd heard, I would be put off Christianity for life. Now, we've got to move in faith, but the idea that the so-called prosperity gospel prospers, proffers, is that you can basically have whatever you want if you have enough faith that God's desire for you is to be well and wealthy in this life. I'm conscious of you possibly being put off by this subject. So I'm conscious of a third group possibly being put off by this subject, and that is for those who are genuinely and desperately financially in trouble. I'm conscious of you, three groups. But there's a reason why. There's a reason why, as recorded in the Gospels, Jesus spoke more about money and treasures and possessions than he did about faith or prayer or heaven or hell. In fact, he said more about how we're to view and handle money and our material possessions than shockingly about any other single thing. It's so relevant for our culture here today. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray. I'd like you to close your eyes. You are going to be put under zero pressure today, so please do not worry. But I'd just like you to close your eyes. And just say, Lord Jesus, thank you that salvation is in a moment. But being a disciple is submitting every area of life to your lordship and for your kingdom. Okay. Firstly, generous stewardship begins with peacefulness. Some of you will have read these words before, but if you didn't, we've just read some 
extraordinary words in verses 11 to 13. They are, I would suggest, some of the most provoking in the entire New Testament. Paul has written to them and he said this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned this. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I've got lots or nothing. That is deeply provoking. What a challenge to us. You see, contentment or being at peace with how things are is not a common trait in modern Western society at all. In fact, we are aggressively, aggressively trained in the opposite direction. The message our culture wants to sell to us is that you can be all you want to be and you can have all you want to have. I would say the effect of this mantra is a bit like the effect you sometimes see on, that the wind has had on trees. If the wind blows hard enough, long enough, in a certain direction, in a prevailing direction, you'll find that the tree is leaning in that direction. Let me just tell you and warn you that if you live predominantly in this modern Western culture, that is the message that you are being sent all the time. Do not be satisfied with what you've got. So this has a huge impact on our expectations, on our ideals, on our ambitions, on what we think a good life looks like. We're actually trained to be discontent. Take, for example, advertising. If you're into advertising, I'm not against you this morning. It can serve a very good purpose. But advertising has to work by one basic premise, which is to make you feel dissatisfied and discontent until you have that product. That's how it has to work. You need this for a fuller, better life. You need this phone for a fuller, better life. You need this car for a fuller, better life. You need this yogurt for a fuller, better life. The smiles and the oohs and the ahs that come out of people eating yogurt on an advert are amazing. When you find that yogurt, let me know, because I haven't had it yet. I want that yogurt that leaves me in such a glow of satisfaction. And everything else doesn't matter now. I have this yogurt. <laughs> Shampoo and shower gel seem to have a similar effect. <laughs> when you look at those faces, you're meant to think this. Don't you need that? But when that's how you see life, it's impossible to be content. It's impossible to be at peace. It's impossible to be at ease about your current situation. And for us this morning, the issue then becomes this. It's then very difficult to steward your resources generously. And perhaps Paul wasn't always like that. He's honest enough in this passage that we've read to admit that, I think. He says in verse 12, I have learned to be content. 
whatever the circumstances. He goes on to say, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. It sounds to me like he's been on a journey. He's been on a process of becoming more content, of finding that whatever his circumstances, Jesus is enough. So be encouraged. Because you might say, I fall for those adverts all the time. I'm not that content, if I'm perfectly honest with you. There's a journey to go on here. But Paul is able to say, that, and his testimony is now, that he's learned to be content. And notice what he says. He says he's learned to be content, whether in need or in plenty. What he's saying is this. It's more profound than it might have first realized. He's saying this, I am not defined or swayed by my circumstances any longer. His joy and his strength is found in something outside of himself, outside of his material status. You see, both lack and plenty can lead us to be self-consumed and desperate for more and discontent. Did you know that? It's possible to be discontent with plenty. Because whatever much we've got, we want more. There's the next thing. There's your neighbor who's still got a better car. There's your brother who's still got a better house. There's this, there's that, there's the other. And it's entirely possible to be self-consumed and to be struggling terribly to practice generous stewardship when you've got plenty. And it's also possible to struggle desperately to practice generous stewardship when you've got almost nothing. So what he says in verse 19 to them is his own testimony. He says to them, my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus in glory. He can say that because that's his experience. He has found that whether he is chained to prisoners, as he is as he writes this letter, or whether he has at times had plenty, he has found that Jesus Christ is enough and will provide what he needs. When you're grateful for what you have, when you're not defined by much or by little, and when you know that God will meet all your needs, it's possible to practice generous stewardship because you find peace before God about where you are. Let me highlight for you an example from the Gospels of just such an attitude, a remarkable attitude. Because we could easily think generous stewardship is for those who are wealthy and have much. Here's an extraordinary story. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Let me tell you this. If I had been watching that happen, 
and had the courage, I would have gone over to it, and I think I would have got out her two small coins, and I would have said to her, listen, dear, that is so generous of you, but please have it back. I know that's all you had to live on. But Jesus didn't say that. He honoured her sacrificial, generous stewardship out of her poverty. Now, he didn't say those who were rich shouldn't have given. He's just not impressed by the size of the gift. He notices the generosity of the stewardship. I wonder that morning if that widow had thought, can I give today? What if? But she was saying things like this as she generously stewarded the little that she had. She was saying this, God, whatever else, you come first. And she was saying, God, I trust you. Just like Paul is saying here, that my God will meet all my needs. He is faithful. He will be faithful. He's delighted when I follow him to that extent. Generous stewardship starts with peacefulness. Resting in the faithfulness of God, whether you've got much or little, knowing that he will meet all your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus. Generous stewardship, secondly then, is motivated by gospel partnership. It starts with being at peace and at rest in God, and it is motivated by gospel partnership. Gen generous stewardship actually is motivated by many things. One of those would be this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's a good phrase to remember. That's a good sentence from the Psalms to remember. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Let me just remind us. Let me remind me. What you have is not yours anyway. It's good to remember that. It's yours to steward, but it's like it's on loan. It doesn't ultimately belong to you. God has loaned it to you. So look after it well. Be generous with it. That's a motivation for generous stewardship. But here in Philippians 4, generous stewardship is motivated by partnership. What I mean is this. What I do with what I have because of how I see those I'm joined to. So twice in this passage... As Paul speaks of their generosity to him in terms of partnership. He's not just saying, thanks for your gift. That was very nice of you. He's saying, thanks for your gift. It shows that you are in partnership with me for the gospel. And it's here in this letter that we see the occasion for the letter. So he acknowledges that Epaphroditus has sent a gift to Paul from the Philippians. Epaphroditus has traveled a long, long way to get a gift to Paul to meet his needs. It's this church that Paul writes of famously in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where he says this, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Just like that widow, out of her extreme poverty, Paul is commending this church that out of their extreme poverty, rich generosity has welled up. That's the heart that they had. Such was their peacefulness in God. They've been quick at every point to meet Paul's needs. 
Unlike any other church, he says, you've met my needs. You've been in this with me. And remember, do you remember that word partnership? We talked about it on the first week. It's mentioned in chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. So in chapter 1, he writes this to them at the start of the letter. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, that word partnership is is the translation of the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia means fellowship, participation, a close association between people. It's a sharing of life and faith because of what we've got in common in God. And it's that same word that he uses twice more in this passage that we read. It's translated share in this passage here, but it's exactly the same root word. Their generosity towards Paul and what Paul is doing for the gospel is not simply that they feel sorry for him. It's not simply that they are good humanitarians. It's because they're joined together in partnership for each other's good, for the glory of God, and for the sake of the gospel going forward motivated by partnership, gospel partnership. Now, if you're part of this church or becoming part of this church, let me tell you this. We share a profound partnership. I really hope that you haven't seen this church as simply somewhere to attend on a Sunday morning. I trust that it feels like it's becoming like You're in it for partnership. That's what God does. He puts people together for the sake of his name. And he puts them together for the advance of the gospel. We are here to see lives transformed every day across this bay. Isn't that all right? That's what we're doing here. That's what God's called us to do. That's why we're in partnership. And let me just tell you the cold facts. That takes some resourcing. And that's partly why God has put us together. Your generous giving is fueling that mission. And through these gift days, which are also for gospel advance, we're looking to press into our Southbourne site. We're looking to increase our online presence. Our building still needs some more work doing to it. Our overseas involvements need some investment. And there are other local initiatives for the gospel that we're looking to support. That's what it's about. Please never, ever think of your giving or gift day simply as keeping it going. Never, please think of it simply as paying some salaries. There is gospel advance at heart here. That's what this church is for, to see the name of Jesus lifted high and more people come to know him. Now, if you're part of this church, I trust that is why you're part of this church. That's the sort of partnership that God puts people in. That's the sort of thing that Paul is expressing here in this passage. So let me encourage you. If you haven't been giving before, if you just haven't got giving yet, let me encourage you. Join the partnership. Get involved in what God is doing to see the name of Jesus extended in this bay. 
because we are in partnership for the gospel. Can I give you one bit of practical advice, which is this. Some people don't start giving because they don't feel they have enough to be able to give something. I understand that. Let me give you a tip. If you're young, wherever you are, here's a tip. Start giving something regularly. Start giving something regularly. Build into your financial habits the habit of giving something regularly. It might be this much. It might equate to the widow's two mites that's spoken of that we, in the story Jesus uh, was told about Jesus there. It might be that much. But let me tell you an interesting thing. There was a guy called Rockefeller who was a great philanthropist. And he said once upon a time, I would never have tithed. He was talking of tithing. We're not talking of tithing. He said, I would never have tithed my first million. I'd like to be able to do that. I would never have been able to tithe my first million if I'd never tithed my first paycheck of $1.50. I only get $1.50. What's the point? It's not going to make any difference. Let me tell you, make a big difference because the Lord will be delighted. He doesn't need it, but he'll be delighted with your heart and it will start you on a habit. Don't wait till you've got masses to start giving. Start giving. Get into the habit. Because we're in partnership together. Let me ask you, are you at peace enough, content enough to be able to steward generously? Let's steward generously because of partnership in the gospel. And then at the end here, generous stewardship, like everything else, is to the praise of God. The way the Philippian Christians have generously stewarded their resources has obviously blessed Paul. But it's interesting what he says as well. It's blessed Paul, the one they've given to, but it's like their giving, their generous stewardship, has bounced back on themselves. Has bounced back on themselves. He says this, What I desire is that more be credited to your account. What he means is this, I desire the blessing that comes to you from your own generosity. How many people here will know this? There is a strange principle, which is not why we give, but it's true of giving, which is this, that as you give, you seem to receive. Have you noticed that? Okay, you need to start giving a bit more to notice that. Not many people are aware of that. There's a strange principle at work which is what Paul is reflecting here, he's speaking about there. I desire not so much that, that I receive, he says, as that it all rebounds to you. There's a strange principle at work. Let me encourage you. God is faithful. He will meet all your needs according to the riches in Christ Jesus. But more importantly, even than that, he says in verse 18, the gifts you sent are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Let me make it very clear. God doesn't need anything. God is independent. He has no need. He's not contingent on us at all. He needs not a penny of yours. He doesn't need it, he doesn't need it at all. Do you know why? It's all his anyway. He doesn't need anything from us. 
but he's given us the privilege of partnering for the gospel. And there's also this extraordinary thing, Paul says, that your gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The image is of the Old Testament sacrifices. They'd hack up a bull or a goat. It's a bloody business. Terrible mess. They'd add some incense, and as it was all going up, it's a bit like, it's a little bit like there's a sweet smell, not just of burning flesh, but, but adding incense to it, of, of, of incense rising, as if it's rising to heaven, as if God is sitting there, this is not theologically true, God is sitting there in heaven and coming up to him. Ah, oh, it's my people. They're sacrificially offering in obedience to me. So one commentator says of this passage, the giving here in Philippians 4, it pictures God literally taking pleasure in the smell of the sacrifices offered by his people. It's a great picture. And it makes me ask this provoking question, which I ask to me as much as to you, and it's this. If God smells my offering, as it were, how does it smell? A sweet-smelling fragrance or a stink? I mean no offense. I just think that is the image that Paul is using here. Lord, I want to make sure you don't need anything from me except my heart. But may my heart and my alignment to being a disciple of yours be such that every area of my life is a sweet-smelling fragrance, including this one. All of which means that being generous with what God has stewarded to us leads to God being praised. Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. May that be the motivation, the true ultimate motive of every gift you give today any day lord be praised i don't want any praise out of it whether it's big or small it doesn't matter but may you be praised may your kingdom come right i have one minute i'm going to have three very practical questions okay so god wants me to steward my resources generously with peace at peace with him trusting him in partnership for his praise how am i supposed to know how much to give. Have you ever wondered that? How am I supposed to know? We will never tell you how much to give, so I'm not going to answer the question. But I'm going to give you three questions very quickly. What have I decided in my heart to give? If you hate giving, please don't give. You should not give under compulsion or reluctantly, the Bible tells us elsewhere. What have you decided in your heart before God? What have you decided? Question two, does my giving represent generous stewardship? Does my giving smell to God like a generous offering? C.S. Lewis, who said many annoyingly profound but helpful things, said the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. It's annoying, isn't it? But it kind of rings true. Add this bit on that. 
we would never encourage you to give to get into debt. That's not what that means. Third question, final question. Is my giving full of faith and vision? Think of that widow in Luke chapter 21, giving her two pennies. Was there faith in that? My goodness, there was faith in that. Is there faith? Am I having to say, as I give, Lord, you need to turn up. Please turn up. Please turn up. I haven't just given out of my spare. I've given in faith. And I've given with vision because I'm in partnership for the gospel. Is our giving full of faith and vision? My favorite quote with which I'll end on giving is this. Every time you spend your money, you're casting a vote for the kind of world you want. I love that. That's so helpful. Let me encourage you, as you give today, next Sunday, regularly, whether you're doing that or not yet, let me encourage you, you are making an investment in the kind of church you want, in the kind of bay you want, in the kind of gospel impact you want this church to have. It's an investment. It's never an expense. It's an investment that rises to heaven, God is delighted with, and the gospel can go forth with. So let me encourage us. Generous stewardship in light of all that God is, all he's done, and that he is faithful. Amen?